Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Vagabond Actors Podcast, where we discuss all things acting, we focus on the craft, the process and the business and pretty much everything that happens in between. My name's Gary Condes and I'm talking to you from London. As always, we also have Brian Casp, who is based in Prague. Hello, Brian. How's it going this week? Hey, how's it going, Gary? Yeah, all good, all good. You know, venturing slowly into winter, but, you know, keeping alive and keeping the best foot forward. That is important these days. (laughs) It is important. It's probably the only thing you can do at the moment with any surety, that's for sure. Exactly. And we are also joined by Andrea Helen, who is based on the lovely island of Mallorca in Spain. Hello, Andrea. How are you? I'm fine, gentlemen. Thank you. Nice to be back. Good. Well, it's only been a week. Yes. But some days I need you more than once a week. You know, some days I need to reach out to my guys and get a reality check or a boost or who knows. Right. Well, I'm sure that even though we only meet once a week, sometimes twice a week, we are always ever present in your mind. Yes. <laughs> that was a bit of a reluctant yes then. I thought she wasn't going to be led on that one, I don't think. No. <laughs> it's so, true. It's true. All right. Well, who wants to kick off with what they've been up to in terms of their work or their creative endeavors? Brian, how about you? Why don't you kick off? What have you been up to this week work-wise? Well, I've got two things to share. You know, when Ed was on, I talked about that IKEA clothing rack that I bought and put together. I was so excited about it. Yeah, that high-tech construction. Well, I put it to good use this week, and I used that clothing rack, and I put a gray fitted sheet around it, and that is now my backdrop. Wow. And I've shot a self-tape using that backdrop, and it worked out pretty well. So I'm pretty pleased with the the (laughs) amount of use I can get out of a plain old IKEA coat rack. That rack has been on my to-do list. I've been wanting to go to IKEA and get myself a rack so that I could have uh, a way to hang a backdrop. Yeah. (laughs) So I really applaud your creativity. I will send out a photo. Uh, I have to do another tape tomorrow, and I will set up my studio in this apartment, and I'll take a photo and send you a picture of it because I'm pretty pleased with it. So tell me, what is this thing about a gray background? Because when I'm coaching a lot of actors, there tends to be, and it seems to be advised for people to get a a gray background. That seems to be the most popular and most advised background to get as opposed to a sort of neutral white or cream background. So yeah. what is that uh, about? I think you can get, you can get a gray. I, I know some people do blue background or like mm-hmm. a light blue, not anything too aggressive. But I think what you want when you have a gray background as opposed to a white background is you have something that is a little bit like you want to be the focus of the shot. And so if you have a white background, it can steal focus from you in a certain sense, right? If you have a busy background, then that's not great because there's too much other stuff for them to look at in the frame. A white background is going to reflect a lot of light and be quite almost active in a certain sense. Depending on your complexion, a cream background might be closer to a skin tone that you might have. And a gray tends to fade back 
you can see that it's there, but you can light it in a way that it's there, but it's but it's much darker than than you are. But it's not black. It, you're not talking out of you know the shadows. Yeah, right. when you're doing the tape. So that's that's why gray. Cool. I think blue also is nice because it can it can pop the person out. You basically want to want to have something that creates separation from between you and the and the background. Excellent. So great. Uh, well, next time I'm called up for a self-tape, which I haven't done for ages, I shall remember that. <laughs> and you can put up just something on the wall if you can, but just remember to not have your background so busy, I think is the main thing. You know, cool. if it's white and that's what you have in your apartment, because that's just, you have to be in your apartment these days. Um, that's fine. I, I think that just making it so that you are the star of the shot, I think that's the best thing to keep in mind. Fantastic. And you were going to say, before I interrupted you, the yeah, second thing that you've been so, up to? So just, I had some news with this. I told a story about a callback that I did where the director had given me some kind of rather pointed feedback about whether I was... Uh, An actor or not. Yes. Yeah, whether I had done any text <laughs> work or this kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, we remember that one. He we do. And I, remind, I, us, remind us what he said. Oh, so I had I gone through the scene and I was being a little bit more, I was focusing more on being in the moment. And he said, I did, you weren't leading me through this scene at all in terms of what you were highlighting in the text. Have you, have you done any work on text? And I thought, ow. And then I, you know, tried to do what he wanted me to do. And so that was the callback that I had. And that was, oh, I don't know, a month ago, something like that. And then a little while ago, I got a call from one of the casting people here, and she was asking about dates, a lot of dates, actually. And I was like, oh, this is exciting. And I and I basically tried to clear my schedule for, for the dates that she was asking about. And basically what she was asking was uh, for my availability. And that's something that happens quite frequently for actors is one of the final stages of, of being considered for something is that you get asked for your availability, for your avails. And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm available and this is great. And it was, and then it was, and it was for that role that I had, had been called back for. And what had happened was they had cast another actor who had contracted COVID oh my and they were recasting the role. And I just wanted to mention it because in the end, the director went with a different actor again, but this time it hurt a lot more. Actually, and I think that it's just worth pointing out that the closer you get to being actually cast in something, and I'm sure that in this case, I was probably one of uh, probably three, maybe four actors that they were considering in terms of like people that would be valid choices for them to go with, that you think that this could actually, you start actually thinking, well, I'm going to actually be shooting soon. Uh, instead of, oh, that was an audition and I can let it go. And so I think it was just, it, it stung quite a bit when they said, ah, I went with someone else. And I mm -hmm. actually wrote back to the person that I was corresponding with about this. And I said, yeah, he didn't really like my callback that much, I think. So it's, mm -hmm. you know, so I think it also just kind of brought home how walking into that audition, the job doesn't really feel real. There's a certain practice that we have of letting go of those jobs. But then on the other end of it, you go, well, if I had done a little bit better in that audition, would I be in this position then of not booking a job for 13 shooting days or whatever it was? So it was just a very eye-opening experience to be 
close mm. and then not book it. And it's, it was hard not to wish the actor that they actually hired that he he didn't contract COVID too. <laughs> they would have to go back to me. But you know, so that happened this week. So yeah, it's food for thought because we've said before on on this podcast, we've even given advice or suggestions on how to deal with this kind of thing. But it doesn't make it any less real when you are subject to it. And we are all human, and there are no mathematical equations for dealing with it. There are so many mm. things bearing down on this type of situation that like in life, you are more vulnerable than other times in life. Um, The one thing that is eternal is to look up, look out, and keep going. <laughs> That's right. Well, yeah. you can't do much else, you know? Exactly. You know, Ed's story about getting close to having a really big role in Star Wars, you know, you just think, well, that must have been really tough, you know, because that's... Yeah. Yeah, And to be honest, like I'm not the first person nor the last person, nor will this be the last time that I get close to something and don't book it. So it's it happens all the time. But you know what, as well, the, the story to me, and, you know, I'm sure there's more nuance to it, but, um, you know, just to sort of finish this off a bit is you certainly can cover every element and aspect of the necessary requirements of acting. So this director had a certain way of looking at things. Mm-hmm. And there's just sometimes you just ne- are never going to fit that glove. Yeah. And their their vision or their point of view, because they're coming at it from such a singular place that just sometimes you just aren't going to do that. And that's why actors shouldn't beat themselves up about so much is about, you know what, just take care of what you can yourself. There's so much other mitigating factors outside your control that you just can't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's that's a good way to look at it. Of course. If anyone follows me on Twitter out there, you'll you'll know when that kind of things happen happens because <laughs> I generally uh, tweet about it or I, all of my hard won life lessons come out in tweets. So mm-hmm. and, and, and Brian's sad face gets yeah, out exactly exactly that's what, <laughs> that's what that's what's been going on with me this week. Cool, Andrea, uh, you've uh, been doing some workshops, I hear. Yes, I participated in a workshop here in Mallorca put on by the Institute for Acting Mallorca, which is run by a dear friend of mine, Tara Linke. And we had four of the top European casting directors here. Kate Bone from the UK. She's part of Nina Gold's casting. Kate is a freelancer and she's cast The Crown, Game of Thrones, among other things. Lucy Lennox from Spain, Iris Baumüller from Berlin, and then Nathalie Charon from Paris. And it was a really tremendous opportunity to work with the ladies. It was well run. We separated into four groups and then we rotated through the sessions with, with the casting directors. And, uh, you know, it was informative. The energy was terrific. The actors definitely had some major learning and I really loved getting to know them and, you know, obviously benefiting from their wisdom. I think one of the things that sticks with me or sticks out for me at these opportunities is, you know, so often actors interpret the hierarchy a certain way that doesn't really serve us well, where we think that we are at the bottom of the totem pole and everybody else has control and we don't have much control. We can control our craftsmanship and our training and our preparation. But after that, people pick us or they don't. The agent picks us or they don't. And the casting and the producers and the director either choose us or not. And I think that in particular working with casting directors 
who are generally very clear in my experience that they need us as much as we need them. And they generally really like actors and want us to succeed and do well. And so for an actor to experience that genuine, supportive, encouraging energy and to demystify a little bit the relationship, I think is very, very healthy. And so in a way that maybe actors can't even explain, it's the techniques and the ideas that they glean, of course, but it's also that I think they come away feeling a little bit more powerful in the relationship and a little bit more like these are our peers rather than these are the decision makers. Cool. That's yeah. really great. That's a really yeah. great insight. Because we had talked about your self-tape that I think was for that workshop, wasn't it? Yes. So yes. did you get different feedback from that self-tape or did you get any feedback from that self-tape? I did. So Natalie Charon from Paris was running the self-tape sessions and I had had, this won't surprise you, I had had um, a weak microphone experience on my self-tape. She liked what was going on, but she could see that it was very subtle in some ways. And so the weak sound didn't help me in her experience of that. But she said, I have absolutely no notes for the acting though. I can see that something intelligence going on that you're a very fine actress and this is, this is good, but I'd like to see it better and hear it better. So at the end of the session, after she gave notes to everybody in our group, she said, okay, this is what we're going to do. Grab your iPad or your phone and I'm going to give you 20 more minutes and you're going to go find a space and you're going to retape your self tapes. <laughs> And you could see this little look of horror on most of the actors' faces, like, but I taped it a week ago. I don't remember the I'm, lines, I'm whatever, you know. I did it already. <laughs> you want me to act? So we did it. So I had to find a place that felt private to me and I had decent sound. And I just, you know, I don't know, I put together like five takes or so. And then finally I just said, okay, I'm just going to. I'm just going to have this conversation. I've taken care of the sound. You can see my face. I have privacy. I'm going to take all this feeling I have about this situation and put it into the scene. So I redid it. We came in, we uploaded them. We all looked at them again at the second takes. And uh, she gave me two big thumbs up. That's great. Which was very nice. She's very straightforward and direct. She's funny, but she does it genuinely in a spirit of wanting us to succeed. That's great. Yeah. Gary, what have you been up to this week? This week, there has been a couple of interesting coaching jobs I've had on a couple of actresses who have been prepping for self-tapes for a couple of jobs. One of them was a new American TV series called Dope Sick about the big pharma and the opioid crisis in the United Mm -hmm. States. Oh, So that was really cool to work on. And it did have a hint of um, succession, that sort of sense of dysfunction and families at the high level of the triangle who run these operations. It's been directed by Barry Levinson. Oh, wow. So that was a kind of high end, but also nothing too left field to, to really deal with. It was, you know, high corporate power brokers and all of that. But the other job that I got was completely the sort of flip side, really. It was um, preparing an actress for the new Star Trek TV series, Star Trek Strange New Worlds for CBS TV. Oh, wow. And we worked all week on it, actually, because we worked with her to really get into it. And then we taped it after a couple of sessions. That was really interesting because, you know, making choices about an alien being 
who wasn't fully human and dealing with that and the best way to deal with that and found the most useful and effective way of dealing with that was to sort of humanize her and look at the motivations and drives that drive humans because she came to me and had all these ideas about this alien and I was like look let's just look at the writing and get get back to what's in front of us because if you look at it you know human imagination works from what we know so however little we take into our imagination we're still going to take in what we know as humans and even if we invent some wacky alien it's still going to carry some human resemblances mm-hmm. um, so we basically stripped it back to something real and what were the drives and motivations of this being whether they were human or not and we found that it was all the same what are they doing and yeah. and, and what are they after and they're still the same old universal things power betrayal love regret you know all of these things so once we did that we stripped it all back and it was very interesting because we were left with something real but still slightly strange and otherworldly but an interesting contrast between those two jobs excellent cool so shall we get on to the um yeah we should let's do it This episode of the Vagabond Actors Podcast is brought to you by our friends at We Audition. Now look, we all know that auditioning in a pandemic sucks. You can't find the right partner, and if you do find the right partner, how are you going to connect with them in real time and have the read be seamless? Well, We Audition can help with that. They make it easy to find a partner and they take care of all of the technical stuff so that you can focus on what really matters your audition, and being awesome. Not only does We Audition allow you to find partners that can help you really kick ass, you can be a partner that helps other people really kick ass and get paid for it. There's other really great benefits to being a We Audition member. You can have one-on-ones with top casting directors, you can get career advice from industry professionals, and a lot more. Right now, We Audition is offering a discount on membership to Vagabond Actors listeners when you sign up with the promo code VAGABOND25. So just go to weaudition.com, click on sign up, then click on the link where it says promo code. Put Vagabond25 in the box and you'll get 25% off your membership. Now, back to the show. Let's get on to the uh, main topic for this week. And the topic for this week is feeding your acting. So things you can do to feed your acting are directly inside the acting arena or indirectly outside of the acting arena that can feed into your acting and also help you to sustain and nourish you as an actor in between jobs or throughout your whole life. It's incredibly broad in terms of a topic because you can be feeding your acting in terms of skills that you might want to be working on that you can use as resume builders or kind of widen out if a character needs to have a skill like horseback riding or fencing or something like that or stage combat. And it can also be widening out your acting in terms of what we talk about a lot is the psychology of it and the vulnerability and the openness to it. Usually skills take a long time to learn well enough that you can actually use them in an acting environment, be that an audition or on the set. And there's a lot of different skills. So you have to think about what kinds of things would you like to be doing? Any of the things that I've already mentioned, or it could be something like perfecting an accent, working on some kind of physicality or some kind of sport that that would be good. So thinking about the kinds of roles that you might be getting or the kinds of roles that you'd like to have, and then working towards the skills that are going to enhance that. Um, I tend to be 
auditioning for and sometimes cast in roles where I need to speak with some kind of British accent. Usually I'll default. I will default. That's a skill in itself. Exactly. (laughs) Default. It's kind of going the other way. Um, I will default to some kind of RP, usually, because that feels like it's the less geographically finicky, because the UK accents for Americans tend to be... uh, A friend of mine said that he doesn't like it when Americans speak with a quote-unquote British accent, because, you know, every other word, they're moving geographically 50 miles one way or the other, (laughs) um, because we screw it up so much. What you're talking about here, and and it's kind of two areas that you can cover, and, you know, what we're starting with and what what you're starting to talk about is directly things that can help with our acting and you hit the nail on the head. I mean, combat, horse riding, physicality. I mean, all these things are very individual things that don't require consistent over many years. Of course, to perfect at something you do, but it's something that you can drop into when you have the time. And these things are very important. And also there's something to be said in just moving sideways a little bit from your everyday class mm-hmm. or training that you do. Accents is a great one to get into, I think, because that's something that you can do independent of any classes, even physicality. You could even start to do movement workshops that kill two birds with one stone, aren't you? You're going to deal with the sort of health issue of your physicality, which is good, and that's going to make you feel good, but you're also going to maybe know more about embodying characters and maybe bring that into your work. So, mm-hmm. you know, to add to that, you can continue to do reading plays or, and, and involve yourself with different styles that you haven't thought about or listen to podcasts. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. All those things are directly helpful to your acting, but they are often neglected because they are external to the other work. Well, I definitely agree that, you know, increasing your skills is good, you know, on a very practical level, but also, uh, as you say, in terms of moving sideways, getting out of your own comfort zone, uh, experimenting, um, exercising your brain differently. I think it's really, really valuable. But um, one of the first things when we first talked about discussing this, one of the first things that came to mind was the artist's way and uh, the morning pages and the evening pages that many people do. And Brian, you you had talked a while back about uh, engaging in that again. And I do think that writing is very, very helpful for actors to begin to do without a lot of judgment about what it is that's coming out. If you don't have to write the next greatest screenplay, you don't have to write a stage play, but helping to organize your thoughts and observations, that piece that goes on intuitively and so putting it to paper, I think, can be of enormous benefit. Are you still doing the, the morning pages, Brian? No, I, I'm not. I, mm. I need another shot in the arm. It's, <laughs> uh, I mean, even if you only stayed with it for a while, what did you get from it? Because um, I'd be interested to know, actually. How did it help you? What did it feed? Let's see. I didn't do it for a very long time. And I think that with the morning pages, I mean, she talks about it like a meditation. And I think that those kind of things, what it practically brought me, like a little bit of a taste of this is very good at clearing my mind in the morning. I think something else that I wanted to talk about in a different section, but I think that I can get very judgmental of myself. So part of the struggle with the morning pages, and I think she addresses this in the book, Mm -hmm. is the kind of pressure to do it right 
and mm-hmm. me feeling like, well, I'm not doing it first thing in the morning. You know, I'm kind of doing three pages, but then, it, you know, I, got, I make it bigger at the end and I'm not, you know, I'm kind of trying to cheat it or go around it or some, something like that. And it kind of feels like what they talk about with meditation, where you kind of look for something more in it than just the experience of doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a certain sense. And I, and I kind of felt like other things became more important or getting the kids to school or, you know, it, it just, I wasn't making time for it. I'd like now that <laughs> this is a little bit selfish or maybe a little bit petty, but now that we're back in lockdown, uh, I, I've thought, oh, I should get back to doing this now. Yeah. <laughs> what, what do I have to rush off to? But, um, <laughs> But yeah, that was my experience. So I didn't get a ton of like, oh my gosh, this is a beautiful insight. But I did come up against my resistance. So maybe mm. that's something. Well, that yeah, is I mean, something. That, that is something definitely. Mm-hmm. There is no such thing as nothing, right? When you when you do something. Yeah. Maybe evening pages are up there for you, Brian, as an as a next move. When when all the children are in bed, and you know, there's something still to be emptied from the mind. Maybe there's because of the fatigue, there's a little less resistance to, and judgment about it. I know that for some people, that is a time when they feel much more relaxed and open to the creative process than first thing in the morning when the brain is kicking in with a to-do list and watching the clock so closely. Yeah, but this is okay. This is something that I actually think would be really relevant to this discussion that we're having. Mm-hmm. And this is true for any of these skills that we're talking about, right? And mm-hmm. and for me, I'm sure that I'm not the only one like this. But it's so so much harder to do this kind of work on yourself without someone there to tell you to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh I find that's incredibly helpful for me to like work out with a trainer because if it is me just waking up and doing a half hour of working out on my own, I probably am not going to do it. But if I set Mm -hmm. up a time with a trainer to say, okay, I'm going to meet you at this time. And even now we're doing it over zoom. You know, it's not like I have to physically be there. It's not like he's there forcing me physically to do this stuff, but just that kind of commitment to another person to say, I'm going to meet you at this time. We're going to do this work. You're going to tell me what to do. I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that for me, that really works. And and that's true. You know, I fill that function with students where I show up and they say, you got to tell me what to do. I say, do this thing. They do it. Whereas <laughs> them doing it on their own doesn't have that same kind of gravity to it. And I think mm-hmm. that that could be true with a lot of these skills. And maybe that's something that that I could add to this is like basically forming a group of people to keep each other responsible and keep each other honest about, oh, we're doing this thing. Like whether that's learning an accent or doing some morning pages or some, some kind of meditation or reading a book, like a book club or something like that, that could be really interesting to get some peer pressure going to do it. Cause I know for me, it's really hard to do it if it's just me making myself do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think what you're pointing out there as well is, I mean, I know that I hardly do yoga at home. I mostly, 99% of the time, go to a yoga class. There's a kind of an occasion to it that is shared, a shared experience, which is also very important and maybe less likely nowadays. But there's a structure, there's something that you have to fulfill. So there's that extra urge and impulse to have to do it because of that. But for me, it becomes more of an occasion. Doing yoga at home 
and doing it in a class being led is very different and it becomes more of a, a shared experience and an occasion which feeds you it does feed yeah you really have to know yourself and your own tendencies and if you need to sort of struggle against some lazier tendencies or if you're really quite content to set yourself on a course you know whether what you're pursuing is more time in nature or writing or participating in other fine arts painting and pottery where you are seeking these creative moments or an opportunity to observe human interaction, uh, you're, you're making a choice on your own behalf to let the intuition play on you and to let your intuition take over. You have to know yourself and your own tendencies and your own needs to a degree so that you can set yourself on the right path and not make yourself miserable with this idea of, well, I have to do this. I I should do this thing. You know, if you know, it's good for you. If you know the yoga is good for you, I'm absolutely the same way. I can go to a yoga class, no problem doing it at home, mm, 15 minutes tops. But I think each artist has to discover for him or herself what those natural inclinations are and then how to how to set yourself some time to let the other part of your inner life take over and work on you and inform you. I really love a book by Elizabeth Gilbert. I don't know if you guys have read any of her works or or heard any of her speeches. She wrote a book called Big Magic, and it's all about creativity. And it's a beautiful book. I'm, I'm sure you can get it on Audible, Kindle. I highly recommend it. She talks about, you know, seeking out those things that cause kind of a revolution in your heart. And I love that idea from her. She's a brilliant speaker, a lovely way with words and very fierce ideas. And I think she's definitely worth seeking out if you want to feel that you have somebody who's giving you... Mm, that kind of guidance on how to get closer to yourself. She's a really good guide for that. So I I highly recommend checking out her work as well. If you feel like you need an invitation or an accountability partner in this part of your journey. Mm. I think we often as actors think that if it's not directly related to acting, that it's of no use. And Mm -hmm. I often say, to actors when I'm dealing with this kind of thing. And it's, you've got to feed your belly, you've got to stay alive. You've got to feed your health because you've got to be functioning. And you've got to feed your art because you've got to stay creative. Mm -hmm. And those three things seem separate, but they're not. They can overlap in so many ways. And Mm -hmm. to stay healthy, let's say, to feed your health. You can go to the gym. That's an obvious one. Then there's spiritual practices, yoga, meditation. Now, meditation is going to bring a lot to everything, never mind just your your work and, and yoga too. But incidentally, Stanislavski, you know, was inspired to investigate his system of acting via his introduction and contact with yoga originally. Mm-hmm. And that apparently a lot of his fundamental original techniques were rooted in yoga, but mm-hmm. it was almost forbidden in the Soviet Russia at the time. So he had to kind of smuggle it in somehow through acting technique. I didn't know that. And I read an article recently, a paper that mentioned that. Mm. But anyway, there's all these things you can do in order to feed your acting directly or indirectly. I remember doing uh, an acting training where the usual sort of Alexander technique or yoga or Feldenkrais movement, which are all fantastic, was not used. And they introduced um, Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, the defensive martial arts, And I was like, I really don't want to do this. I'm not, you know, this is not something that I I feel 
is going to benefit my acting. I'm also, I don't want to be combative in that way. I much prefer to be lying on the floor dealing with my spine, you know. Um, um, <laughs> however, when I got into it, the principles of Gracie Jiu Jitsu, it's all floor based, but it's based on the principles, and you'll recognize this straight away, of I will only do something to you when you mm. are doing something to me and attacking me. So immediately, that's uh, good old friend Sanford Meisner. Mm. Um, and, and that is a huge principle in that martial art. And it helped you to connect. It helped you to bond with them, to get physical and intimate. And it just allowed people to maybe loosen up in a way that a class might not have done, really. And it helped me to really get more uninhibited and also get me to really understand this principle of give and take and not to do anything until I'm pushed to do something. You've got to be a fully rounded person as an actor, which means, you know, go out into the world and experience, whether it's travel or going to the museum. And that can feed your artistic fulfillment if you're not getting any from your acting at the moment. Let's say you're going for periods without work. Um, something else. I think it's very valuable and important to do other things than acting at mm. certain times. It really is because that distance from it gives it space for it to grow sometimes because you're going continuously after it. You think that going away from it, even just for a month, your whole acting career is going to stop. And actually, it's a breath of fresh air to maybe go traveling for a while mm -hmm. or take up painting or find some other outlet that will fire up another part of you. I mean, I remember Stella Adler saying at the beginning of her training to people saying yes. the first thing she did was get people to go to Central Park and bring back a blade of grass and put it out on the floor and say, look how many shades of green there are. So you've got to allow yourself to be fed and nourished so that you see the detail, you see the nuance, you see lots of different things in different things. This is actually counterintuitive, but sometimes you've got to turn off to power up, meaning mm -hmm. You know, not even a robot can run all the time without a little downtime for maintenance. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? That's right. <laughs> and all of these things, if you're looking out for them, consciously or unconsciously, can feed into your work. What is it to be an artist? I mean, what is what are you doing when you are making art? And it is basically interpreting and, and reflecting the human condition, I think. If all you're doing is working on the acting craft, how do you know what the human condition is beyond your own narrow experience? Right. I mean, that just goes to, to support that, Gary, where it's just you get out and you go and see life and you see, well, this is what other life is. You know, you could even, you could go and take a class in anthropology or you can take a class in uh, sociology or something like that to see what else is out there or art history or these, these kind of things could even be a valid way of broadening your horizons. Yeah. One of the things that we did in Los Angeles, which is we went as a class to the Museum of Tolerance. Mm-hmm. Which is the Holocaust Museum. And we just used the experience of exposing ourselves to something that we had to have an opinion about. But if you go to see a symphony or some kind of beautiful art or go to see something terrible, like in Europe, you could go purposefully to see some concentration camp, that that will be something that you can use to feed your acting, to put yourself in those places and just to use your senses in that context would be really beneficial. Uh, I've also thought going and volunteering for people who are less fortunate 
would be another way to go and broaden horizons and, and meet people that you might not ordinarily meet. Absolutely. I mean, what you're talking about there for me is first and foremost, you are feeding your humanity, mm-hmm. which is what you yeah. actually said a bit earlier, which is feeding your humanity is actually directly helpful for your acting. <laughs> right. It's helpful for not just your acting, for other things too, but Absolutely. it's definitely helpful for your acting. But, but you're not going out to do that, but you're feeding your humanity. So that helps your experience in life fantastic i teach in poland and you know i've been to i could not go to poland and not go and visit these places and it's harrowing and it's and if you really get into it and stay there and and consider it all and you come out changed and you come out better for it how can that not be good now i have a frame of reference now i have somewhere else to go to if i feel i need to draw on Mm -hmm. something um so absolutely i'm all for that kind of thing because you've got to be a citizen of the world If you're going to represent people from the world, from high to low and sideways and backwards and, you know, of all shapes and sizes, that for me, whenever I go to a party, I'll actually void actors and I'll go and talk. I should be networking with actors, but I'll go and talk. Who wants to talk to actors at a party? (laughs) (laughs) I'll go and talk to, I don't know, a lawyer or I'll go and talk to someone who's a farmer, an organic farmer. And I'm like, I'm just intrigued by it all. And, you know, and and that's what Marlon Brando used to do. He used to, Mm -hmm. he's the story in the biography about him by Peter Manso where he'd go to parties and someone was observing him and he'd observe people and he'd go off into the corner and he'd replicate them like physically so if someone he was talking to who was scratching their nose a lot or had a twitch or maybe moved on their feet he'd talk to them and then he'd go off and he'd do it which would seem insane but you know he was but brilliant insane and he was absorbing it but two birds with one stone humanity feeding your while you're feeding your art it's it's symbiotic it's mm. like it, it's in, it's essential it's absolutely yeah. essential Stella Adler uh, was very big on this and all of this yeah. line of thinking about the value of participating in life so that you could portray it on the stage and um, I think from my understanding there was there was little support for the idea of you know hiding yourself away and then expecting to be able to bring precision uh, to your work and, and true understanding to your work. Yeah, Yeah. very much. For instance, I wouldn't have discovered these artists if I wasn't doing the things that we're talking about, Mm i.e. finding something to nourish me, but I use it in my work whenever I feel the material is necessary, even if it's different material, but of the same kind of vibe, I'll go to Edvard Munch, the Norwegian Mm -hmm. painter, you know, full of despair and he's known for his famous painting, The Scream, but there's so much more to his work. And when I worked on Stringberg, I used that as source material. But another one, mm-hmm. which I'm sure you guys appreciate being American, is Edward Hopper. I yeah. love Edward Hopper. And I just look at those paintings and I've done roles where, and I've pointed people who are playing roles to, to you know, there's this sign of loneliness and isolation and kind of mis- you know, non-communication, two people sitting in a room, or Nighthawks is his famous one. And there's just a, it's just so evocative. And I use that and I use it over and over again for different material, but for the same reasons, you know. Gary, you should teach an art class for actors on Zoom and I'll join it because I have such a small appreciation for still art. I, I wow. the living the living arts I, I I'm down with, but I, I can't handle paintings. I can't okay. handle it. So I, I need the appreciation. Maybe we could do a podcast on it, but uh with, yeah. with like a slideshow kind of thing. But I can't I don't know, man. <laughs> 
But you know what? It, you just need to maybe sit, and it doesn't have to be painting, because I know, you know, the more classical you get, and I've just cited sort of modernist, but modern painters, but, you know, the more classical you get, it can be a bit like, well, what's this crucifixion scene? I can't get into that. I'm not religious. Yeah. <laughs> or I'm, I'm into the, you know, the pre-Raphaelites or whatever. But you can take a photograph or a street photograph, or you can take a portrait, and it's just about penetrating it. It's just about sitting with it and seeing what comes to you mm-hmm. in the same way as you might do a text. Although, you know, I get it, texts have a bit more to hang your hat on because they're there's words. And, you know, Stella Adler was very, as you quite rightly said, Andrew, was very big on that, was finding source material for the period, going to other works of art of the period to nourish you, um, but not just other works of art of the period to nourish that particular period piece that you're working on as an actor, but also other outside stuff. You can find a, a modern piece of art. Music is a big one that we've talked about in, in acting, but whether it's a picture or a painting that is modern, that informs a classical piece that you're doing. It could be Shakespeare. And you've got to be careful that it doesn't become conceptualized and a bit abstract, but that's always the case with a lot of stuff that one uses to nourish one's acting. But Because we're talking about stuff that kind of feeds your acting, but it doesn't have to be in a direct way. So just kind of learning how to appreciate this stuff in a more general way, you know, it doesn't have to directly relate to any kind of acting uh, No, exercise. not at all. Well, how do, you, how do you appreciate a summer's night or a mountain or a, a, a view? I mean, how do you, it's the same way, you know, mm. you don't have to necessarily look for meaning, it will come you'll get associations anyway. But when you're dealing with the plastic arts a bit more, when you're dealing with maybe something like paintings, there'll be faces, human behavior that as an actor, you will be able to hopefully just lock onto for some reason and make something of it, mm-hmm. you know, basically sit with it and see what comes. That's what I've tended to do in the past. Okay. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. There's one part of it, which is the most less obvious and maybe less glamorous part of all of this, feeding your acting. I mean, it's more the practical side. You know, you've got to live, (laughs) haven't Mm -hmm. you? What do you think are the necessary elements that could feed your acting that are to do with staying alive and feeding your belly? There's the job and there's the money situation, but there's still things that you can do to earn money that are directly related to acting, you know? Well... To make money to live. I'm not saying to make money right. as in to buy the, the second condo right. in Miami. Co- right. I'm not the I second mean- condo. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. The life of, a, of an actor is one, in my case anyway, is one that is like you try to create as many maybe tiny income streams as you can. So that if I'm making a certain amount from doing voiceovers and a certain amount from doing some coaching and a certain amount from doing some acting in front of a camera and a certain amount from teaching my regular class and a certain amount from teaching an accent class or something like that, or what have you, that basically you tend to float on a diverse amount of income streams in my experience, yeah. which I don't know if that's what you mean. It's different than working in a, in a bar, but, um, well, yeah, no, I mean, that's great. You know, staying busy is just part of it. I think success as an actor is just as much about being a success outside of it as a human being. And I'm not saying you have to be rich. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about you are functioning on all levels and creating a steady, interesting way of staying alive while you are also pursuing that if you have to, you know, if yeah. your acting isn't the only thing that's happening. And that sounds to me as being successful outside of it. You know, it's again also surrounding yourself with the right people, 
Now, there's just as much to be said, like we've said earlier, about having other experiences outside of acting. I think that's essential. But within it, there's also, you know, surround yourself with the right people. I did that, and that meant that I got a job with ICM as a script reader. Mm -hmm. And I got a lot of my script development work from training, but also it was seeded then when I was having to do reports on scripts for stars who didn't have the time to read them or the agents didn't have time to read them. Yeah. And these were massive, Anthony Hopkins, Sean Penn, I was reading scripts that maybe they they never even got to them, but that was just something I got from someone who I know and had the balls to kind of go, you know what, I'm going to do that because it's within the business, I'll learn something. And like you said, that was only one little bit of an income stream. It wasn't going to save my life. But that kind of experience is hugely beneficial. When you're reading script after script after script, you start to develop a sense of like, oh, this is good and this is not good. Or this is moving me and this is not moving me. I mean, that's that's a huge benefit. Yeah. And I had no training. So it's like you sometimes just jump in and splash about and go, you know what? I'm going to, I've got to fight to stay in this world. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of reading, and maybe you could talk a little bit more about it, and this definitely has a direct application, but also a wider application, is the Playhouse West reading list, which when I was there was, I don't know, 20 pages long of book recommendations and stuff like that. So not not to go into individual recommendations, but would you be able to talk a little bit broadly about the way that that reading list was structured? It's an outstanding list that was cultivated over a period of time by the founders at Playhouse West and the band students, but it was really driven to be a diverse long-lasting resource for students. I mean, it could take you years to get through the entirety of the, it would take you years to get through the entirety of the recommended reading list. They did divide it up into beginning, intermediate, and advanced levels of work to best support you at those different phases of your training. There were biographies, there were works about managing your life and your time and prioritizing things, um, accessing creativity, There were filmmaking books and screenwriting books and, of course, plays all across the spectrum, not just great American plays, but international plays. Uh, It's an extremely hefty and thoughtful accumulation of materials. And I always have had a copy of it because because I just recognized that it was something very special. I think back in the day when you joined the studio, you paid $10 to get your copy of the reading list and I tucked it away very safely somewhere. And I think one of the things that it does for student actors, it was that little jiggle saying there's always more to do. There's always more to read. There's always more to learn and to discover. And if you've run out of ideas, just open me up because I'm bound to stimulate you in some direction to go discover Eugene O'Neill or um, filmmaking in the 50s, uh, read Kazan's book, whatever it is. It's super helpful to have quality resources available to you. And, you know, things have changed so much in the digital age. We have it. It's out there. You can Google like 100 movies you need to see before you die. Like you could Google that and keep busy for a while. There are great resources available to us. We just need to give ourselves the time and the space to investigate. 
Yeah. I remember when I was studying at Playhouse West, Mm -hmm. and this is before, you know, mobile phones. This is before Kindle. This is before whatever. And I'm sure you could go and order these books, but some of them were out of print or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have that much money that I was going to go and order a whole bunch of new books. And so I would Mm -hmm. go and call the Santa Monica library, or I would go drive all over LA to the libraries to look for these books. And I read quite a few of them. Mm-hmm. On the list, I, I remember at least the beginning books are organized in chapters of the seven habits of highly effective people. Yes. I mean, this is kind of going to what I was talking about with needing someone to push me mm-hmm. to do stuff, to learn how to be self-motivated mm-hmm. and to not need so much pushing because yeah. so much of our careers are, you know what, if you're not going to do it, it's not going to happen and nobody's going to push you. So this ha- the Seven Habits of Highly Successful People is a best-selling book by the author named Stephen Covey, C-O-V-E-Y. And this is a book that you can read on your own, but you can also explore this as in a workshop that you can create with a group of friends. You can say, okay, we're going to read the first habit, be read by a, a week from now. We're going to gather together via Zoom or in person, and we're going to share our thoughts and perceptions. And there are some very specific pieces of work that he has you go through And if you have a trusting group of people that you can be um, accountable to in in pursuing this, I think it's very, very helpful. That's a great book to do in a group. Good resource. Mm -hmm. Yes. Just following on from the digital age and how that has made and the work, you know, the sweat and the the travel that, you know, we had to do. We sound old, don't we? But, well, I do anyway. But, you know, to get on a bus, to get to the library or to get to the central library where the biggest resource of plays were, is I offer up on a weekly basis a suggestion for a play to be read or a film Mm -hmm. to see or a TV series, and particularly an actor. You know, I call it acting soul food Mm -hmm. on my Instagram. And... um, I put up, you know, Eugene O'Neill's Long Day's Journey and Tonight, Um, you know, dripping with circumstances. It's extreme. Mm -hmm. It's proper drama. It's full on. And for an actor who wouldn't want to get involved in all of that stuff. And someone commented and said, thanks for the suggestion. Is there any way I can see part of this online? See part of it. And I I wrote back and I said, it's a play. It's meant to be read. Actors (laughs) need to read plays. (laughs) <laughs> and so that's another thing that you know you can do to feed your work but mm-hmm. but that's the problem i mean and i do believe people are going to read less and less as the generations come because you know yeah. it's, it's becoming a pictorial culture one thing about that idea though like as you speak i'm thinking of the reasons why an actor is pushing back against this idea you know and one of them could be look i can't spend 20 bucks every time a new book comes out well guess what in many many communities there are tremendous used bookstores that would be happy for your business i would say that i have an extensive book collection of plays and reading materials that I've gathered over the years, much recommended to me by that reading list. And I got the majority of them at two used bookstores in Los Angeles that were phenomenal. I mean, I could pick up, I don't know, a biography of uh, James Dean for a dollar. You know, there are resources out there and um, there's no excuse not to read more. There really, there really isn't. I know we're yeah. all dead tired at the end of the day, and maybe you can only read 15 pages a night, but 
set yourself the goal to read more and to become more literate in your field, whether it's plays or screenplays, read more. For me, it's number one. And out of that, you will write more and you will understand dramatic structure better. And you will hopefully gain an empathy as you understand scenarios and circumstances differently. It all, it all feeds together. And you know what? You'll just be a better person. How about that? <laughs> you know, as you say, feed your humanity and you can't help but feed your, your talent. That reminds me of what Al Pacino said. He said the theater taught him how to live, taught him about life. Because, you know, he wasn't very well educated at all, pretty much from the gutter. And he said that his early contact with plays, and that's why he continued to work in the theatre, as opposed to a lot of other actors who went and just did film from there on in, which is fair enough. But he, yeah. he had to keep going back to the theatre. He said, I know the theatre educated me. And, mm-hmm. you know, I kind of relate to that because it's like, yeah, it's, I learned more yeah. in, by dealing with plays and reading them and being in plays and watching plays than I did at school. That's for sure. Yeah. I have one more idea I want to share. Okay. So again, I'm thinking about some of our listeners who may be thinking, I don't have time. You guys, I have a three-year-old and a seven-year-old and I'm making lunches and I'm putting them to sleep and I'm facing the bewitching hour every day at six o'clock. And I'm, I'm so exhausted and I'm so stretched because I have a family. The work of the family is so critical. When I got pregnant a very well-regarded acting teacher said to me, well, we'll never see you again. (laughs) I said, oh yeah, you'll see me again. Like, you'll see me again really soon. And I think the point of view that was being presented to me was so many performers go off and have a family and then they start to realize what's really important. That's actually what he was trying to say to me in further conversation. And I said, but, but isn't that brilliant that if I then choose to come back to acting, I have that life experience to bring to it. I've grown in a million zillion ways at my waistline and in my brain and my heart. Isn't that a value? And he said, absolutely. So if you are in that phase of life as a mother or father, or caretaker, and you're listening to some of our suggestions thinking, I just don't have the time people I just want to say I honor the work of raising a child and taking care of family responsibilities. And even in those moments, remember that you are gaining an empathy, you're gaining an experience, you're, you're, you're gaining an understanding of the human condition. And this you can very easily bring to your work. Just remember to breathe. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very good. Very important. Okay, feeding your acting is what we've been covering. But uh, this final section that we normally engage with, which is what has spoken to us in terms of art and what has inspired us, feeds very neatly into that. So what tip do you have of someone to watch or go and see or listen to that has inspired you? Yeah, what creative or work of art has um, spoken to you recently? So on the back of this experience that I had with this film and getting close to this role and then not getting it and feeling heard and depressed about it and then kind of going through that. I was listening to a podcast that I have an on again, off again relationship to, but (laughs) he, (laughs) he was talking about his experience actually interacting with Ram Dass, Mm -hmm. who was, he's an American who went to India and and had an experience with Maharaji and did a whole bunch of lectures. And it's 
pretty far out stuff. I find it very reassuring to to listen to him and to think about being in the moment in that way and try to kind of release some of the ego that I feel. So mm. uh, so I would say, you know, take a listen to some some Ramdas. Fantastic. I wasn't aware of that, so I'm going to definitely listen to that. And it follows on so well from what we've been speaking about because that is going to feed in unconsciously or consciously. So fantastic yeah. stuff. Yeah, and it's it might be a kick in, kick in the butt for me to uh, to actually start doing morning pages again and or start meditating again. So we'll, well see. I tell you what, I I have never meditated, only perhaps at the end of a yoga class where you have a end of class sort of meditation, which is part of the class. But literally in the last three months, halfway through lockdown, I started to actually do a course and um, meditation was part of it. And mm-hmm. I've been doing it every day since. Hmm. Um, yeah, I re- highly recommend it because it's quite addictive. And I don't know, hopefully it will. I'll continue. But um, it does. It definitely does something. I'm not sure I can put it all into words right now. I don't need to. But I, I would recommend it. Give it a go. Okay, I'll, I'll try to. <laughs> <laughs> that's what that's what I would recommend to people. As I, Ram Dass, you know, he's it's it's pretty far out stuff. It's pretty cool. <laughs> I have been trying to look for some new programs. I've been checking out a few, but I nothing to recommend at this moment, sadly. Um, but I have been bringing music back in more. I find that I've needed it in some stressful moments. It's been a, it's been a nice source, and I I really love. I've always loved film music. Uh, I just find it so evocative. So even if I don't know the film, there's, there's, I find it can be very, very moving and thought provoking. And, um, so I've been spending more time with film scores and I really like it. I love, uh, I've been listening to, of course, the Game of Thrones and, um, the hours and a couple other pieces, um, as well as some musicals that I particularly love, but I would just say, um, find some great music, whatever, whatever floats your boat, whether it's blues or classical, just get that music on because we have so much, so much other conversation going on in our brains. So make some space for music in your daily life. That's what I have to say about that. Yes, that definitely speaks to me because I've got to do so. I I don't listen to half as much music. I'm visual. I watch a lot of stuff. I listen to a lot of stuff. I read a lot of stuff. But um, Mm -hmm. uh, my music intake is really, really down recently. So that's a good reminder. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for that one. So this week, you pointed out actually, you know, finding things to, to on TV or series to watch. Actually, you can tell that there is a lull in production because it's harder to mm-hmm. find stuff. Yeah. So my girlfriend was a dancer many years ago and very much into contemporary dance. So she introduced me many years ago to Pina Bausch, the German dancer mm-hmm. and choreographer. And because we didn't have any TV series to watch or whatever, we, we thought, let's watch some dance. And we went on YouTube and found some uh, Pina Bausch pieces and mm. what i love about them and we we've seen many of them live by her company she she really does blend movement and sound and stage sets and her dancers uh, it's almost the dancing is almost performative it's it's mm. that half of them are actors and, and almost are acting a lot of it rather than dancing and it's a real fine line between theater and dance 
and it's very behavioral. There are motifs that run through it that are repeated. And it's very accessible while still being very symbolic and creative. So for actors out there who want to feed their work um, with something a bit different, Pina Bausch, maybe Café Muller, or Nelken, which the whole stage was a field of flowers. Uh, and it was just breathtaking. I just thought, you know what? This is better than a lot of theater that I've seen. You know? <laughs> cool. Well, if you guys have topics that you would like us to cover on Vagabond Actors, uh, maybe it's a, a thought that you had that would be a good for a discussion or a, an issue that's come up in your work or in class, uh, definitely get in touch with us at Vagabond Actors on Twitter, Instagram, and on Facebook. And if you want to get in touch with us individually, I am Brian Casp, and I'm at Brian Casp on Twitter and Instagram, and I have a page on Facebook that you can look at. Uh, what about you, Gary? Where are you at? Uh, yeah, I'm on Facebook, uh, Instagram, Twitter, but you're better off getting in touch via my website, which is garycondes.com, and just go to the contact page and drop me an email about anything you want. And Andrea? I am at Instagram at AndreaHelene3 and Twitter at Andrea underscore Helene. Well, thanks very much. And I hope you guys can get in touch and follow us and like our stuff. And uh, hope you join us again next week for another exciting topic. Thanks, Bye. everybody. Bye. 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 Bye.